Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you'll need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We are live here on the MMA Industry Podcast. I am your host, James Lynch. And today we have a very special guest. He is a lead UFC commentator and he hosts the Anik and Florian podcast. Of course, I'm talking about John Anik. John, how are you today? I am well, James, man. You, you know I've admired your work from afar and watching those videos as I'm prepping for all these 26 fighters. So it, it's good to be with you today, my man. Well, I really appreciate that, John, and uh, the checks in the mail. And uh, I always start, I always start the uh, the show off talking about how I know my uh, guest. And uh, you and I have actually met in person uh, briefly. Uh, we uh, we met at UFC 218. If you remember, I was uh, in the hotel lobby, uh, frantically trying to upload my interviews. And I think we uh, we saw each other, and you came over and you asked how uh, how my son was. And I'll I'll always remember that man because you're you know the one thing you know we see you on television and obviously the great work you do. But outside of it, just you know the, the times I have met you and obviously uh, just you know the work you do outside uh, on the podcast podcast um you know you're you're just a true professional in and out so i wanted to make sure i told people that story because uh you know i think it's uh, very important well i appreciate it man you know i got a soft spot for new fathers and uh that's one of the real perks of social media it, it connects people that otherwise would not be connected in a professional and a personal way so uh no it was good to touch base there in detroit and uh just don't have more than three kids man whatever you do i got two <laughs> right now i got a third coming in eight days or or less and, oh congrats uh, well, thank you. But, and you know, Forrest Griffin used to tell me, he's like, dude, we got an overpopulation problem. What do you need to run it back for a third kid? And largely he was right, but we'll see how it goes. That's great. Now, I always uh, also start the show off with uh, how I first sort of became aware of my guest. And uh, I actually knew about you before the UFC. Um, so I used to work at uh, TSN in Canada. Uh, my day job uh, for a long time was I was a video editor. And uh, when I was at TSN, uh, I was a digital content editor. And uh, as as uh, most people know, you used to work at ESPN. And uh, I remember you used to voice the baseball highlight packs. Uh, we yeah. used to actually grab those from you and put them on our website. Um so, uh, so I, I find that's kind of interesting to see, you know, I just remember you from then. And then obviously you're doing great work with the UFC, but I want to go all the way back to the beginning. Uh, when did you decide at, at, you know, when you were growing up that you wanted to pursue broadcasting as a career? Well, I think it was more about sports journalism than broadcasting for a while and wanting to be a sports writer. And that later progressed to wanting to be on the radio. 
you know, when you grow up in Boston, like it or not, uh, you're going to have sports be some cornerstone of your life. And, and my mother was a huge sports fan, my dad to a lesser degree. But my mom grew up in the era of the Bill Russell Celtics, or maybe that, I guess, predates her. But certainly John Havlicek was her favorite player. And I was born into it. The Red Sox were on every night, whether I liked it or not. So I, I graduated college and I had accrued a lot of sports writing experience. I did a a Washington journalism semester at American University that was sort of immersed in sports TV and and sports journalism and wanted to be a sports writer. Um, But what I found was there were a lot of Chuck Mindenhalls out there, right? Guys that were better with the written word or more creative. My copy was always clean uh, and not to denigrate myself as a sports writer, but I, I was never, I never had the creativity. It would take me forever to write a lead But I felt like when I was arguing sports with these guys, maybe I could articulate myself pretty well. So I went back to school sort of against my father's wishes to the Connecticut School of Broadcasting, did some career training there that enabled me to get a sports radio internship and eventually was able to work my way on the air. And, you know, I probably sent out 300 radio demo tapes and the only bite I got, I got one bite in, I think, New Mexico and then ESPN Radio, the national network in Bristol, Connecticut. So uh, sort of weird how that worked out, but went down an audition and that sort of got me in the door at ESPN 2005, 2006 and, and eventually progressed from radio to TV, which was never the initial goal. Um, but, but here we are, I guess. So when you were starting out, was baseball the dream? Did you want to be a baseball commentator just being a Red Sox fan? You know, I think we all wanted to be either the voice of the Red Sox or have a radio show on WEEI. But I grew up a, a Patriots season ticket you know, holder. Okay. My grandfather had a, a box for years dating to the 1970s until about 1994 when Bob Kraft came in and bought the team. So we were a Patriots family first, I think, in a lot of respects. And so that was obviously great that it turned around the way it did because when I went to those games, they were the laughing stock of the NFL. I think my record at, at the old Foxborough Stadium is probably 50 games under 500 so oh, really okay. nice to see them win some Super Bowls and uh I will say though the industry changes you I'm still a diehard Boston sports fan but you end up rooting for athletes and stories a lot and even though you know I, I was rooting for the Vegas Golden Knights to see a guy like Ovechkin get a chance to hoist the cup that was special to me so I think as you get older not that your allegiances change but I think they widen a little bit in terms of what makes you happy as a sports fan were you a Boston Bruins fan as well, too? Oh, very much so. Very okay. much so. And that's the hardest pro sports championship to win. And yeah. I don't tell you that, but that's the hardest, hardest by far. And when the Bruins won in 2011, you know, I, I, it's most money I've ever spent on a ticket in my life. I spent like $800 to go to game six of the Stanley Cup final in the bleeds, uh, knowing that they couldn't win the cup, knowing they had to go to Vancouver to win game seven. But Dude, 25 playoff games. It's insanity. It's so much harder than to win a Super Bowl with all due respect. So I got a soft spot for the NHL. I mean, hockey was a distant fourth for us growing up, but that Bruins Cup in 2011 is something I'll never forget. Yeah, and I'll never forget it either because I don't know if you know this. I grew up in Vancouver. I'm a Canucks fan, so uh, I, I was thought here. There might be something there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, I was I was living in Toronto at the time. Obviously, well, I still live in Toronto, but uh, right. to see them to see them lose, um, yeah, that that was heartbreaking. And now to see what the 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 franchise has become, it's it's a little depressing. But that's good. I wanted to you know I was I always have to ask the hockey question in here. Just you know, as a Canadian, it's uh, it's mandatory to get these things out of the way. But I wanted to ask you about uh, the demo tapes. Um, were these on? Uh, you know, when you were sending them out, were these on MP3 or was this CD back in the day? 
Oh, it was CD. And it okay. was, uh, I think there was a link at some point. I remember at some point, some station asked me for an MP3 link and I'm not sure I knew what that was. I actually remember paying a guy at the Connecticut school of broadcasting to do my digital final, right? Like the editing skills that you have accrued over the years now as a talent, I think help you tremendously. I, I mean, you know, cool edit pro and all that stuff was my nightmare. So, um, I was never good with any of that stuff, but it was most definitely on a CD. I think I paid some 18 year old kid, 300 bucks to put it together. And, uh, man, you know, not a lot of bites. I mean, it was very frustrating. I would leave work and I would go home and I would just put out these packages and, and wouldn't get any bites. But, um, you know, I stayed at it and just sort of felt like I only needed one bite. And ultimately I guess that's how it worked out. So did you get to enjoy school at all in the sense that did you get to have like a social life or were you just really hitting the pavement hard with, you know, trying to make a career out of this, uh, you know, as far as the radio broadcasting? No, I mean, I had a a good social life. I I was in a fraternity and uh, that sort of was we did played a lot of sports through the fraternity, you know, played a lot of basketball with those guys. And and that those three months in D.C. were really great because I got to live with my best friend from Gettysburg, who who I'm still very close with today. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, I got to enjoy my college experience. And I I don't know that even though I knew I wanted to work in sports and I had a a column in the the newspaper called Anecdotes on the back page every week, I didn't really. Really, I, I, you know, I had a radio show there, but it was only an hour or two a month. I wasn't, if I had gone to Syracuse, which was the runner up school for me, I think it would have given me more of a head start. I wouldn't have had to go back to school for broadcasting or career training. So I guess if I have any regret, maybe in some respects, it's that I delayed the process a little bit by not going to a broadcast journalism or sports journalism school, but I probably wouldn't trade it in retrospect. I, I was able to to get my pints in, so to speak, you know. I, I did something similar. I went to university in Canada for a communications degree and like midway through year two, I'm like, there's nothing hands-on about this program whatsoever. Like I'm bored yeah. to tears. And I, yeah. I just, I quickly finished the degree as soon as I could. I actually did like a condensed three-year degree and I went to broadcasting school like in college, which was a two-year program. But I can relate because it's like, you know, you're sitting there and you're like, this isn't what I wanted. Like you need that, you know, as a broadcaster, you need to get that experience. And, you know, of course, when I went to broadcasting school, you know, they have a station and we did like a weekly right. show and it's so much different than, uh, than, you know, written stuff that you're getting in university so it's just crazy i mean i date myself right coming up on 40 but i remember getting hired by new england cable news they sent me out with a camera and i came back with no footage so i sort of knew my limitations pretty early on i didn't white balance the camera properly but i ran into a lot of roadblocks on the technical side i mentioned the editing stuff and i'm useless with a camera so uh i guess i found my path but it wasn't always easy at times you know and for those who don't know, white balancing is where you have to get the camera so it gets the right uh, light exposure into the camera. And that's why sometimes if you see on like uh, if you see happen to see a broadcaster like a hockey game or something, and they're holding up that white piece of paper. It's because that's why they're trying to balance the camera, which is uh, yeah, those, uh, tricks of the trade. So so there you go. Um, so you, you mentioned, you know, obviously broadcasters that you were sort of influenced by as far as on television. But what about when you're going to school? Was there any like teachers or anyone that was really like a mentor to you that you really looked uh, sought out advice with? Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of guys, and it really happened at the radio station. I don't know how many of your viewers know Ryan Rossillo uh, and Anthony Pepe, another guy, but Rossillo was really a guy who I learned a lot from. He hosted several national radio shows in this country after we had worked together. But 
nobody worked harder and he, his whole life has been devoted to it. You know, he doesn't have children. He knows every sport. He's truly encyclopedic. And thankfully in 2002, 2003, I had that type of influence on me. And I think that instilled a work ethic in me. And I guess I always had a lot of type A tendencies, but I understood what it meant to do a daily show. And certainly that carries into my UFC prep quite a bit. So he was a big influence uh, and certainly a lot of my college professors, you know, I had to do so much writing in college. It was obnoxious. And, you know, I was the guy like cheating off the football player on my biology test. Right. But when <laughs> it came to writing, I could write my way out of a lot of bad academic situations. But I really credit having to write so much copy and so many pages. And, you know, at my senior thesis and how, how the media undermined American democracy, which I couldn't even tell you my thesis statement now, you know, 15 years later. But I just credit a lot of the the hard work that I was forced to do that at the time I couldn't see the value of that helped sort of shape who I am as a, as a worker, I guess, and as a journalist. Interesting. Now, you talked about, uh, you know, getting hired and things like that. So what was your first official like paid gig? When was that like, you know, small moment in your career early on where you're like, yeah, I made it. I got a paycheck. So I was a news sports correspondent for the Metro West Daily News, making 50 bucks an article, maybe even 25, honestly to write about girls volleyball, high school girls volleyball. And then uh, eventually I was hired at a radio station as the business manager with the idea that I would be able to potentially get on the air and, you know, work like hell to make that happen. But yeah, I was a sports writer on that path. And, and as I mentioned, too many Mindenhalls out there. Right. Yeah. And you kind of have to know your limitations. Um, so now while you're working in this, is this like a part-time job? Like, did you have another job sort of on the side, maybe that you were working to sort of pay the bills uh, outside of, uh, you know, the broadcasting stuff? Yeah. So when I was in high school, I used to work as a, a teacher's assistant for autistic preschoolers. Oh, and so, interesting. So yeah. So the sports writing was very much a part-time gig. I worked full-time as a vocational coordinator for autistic teenagers. So I worked at the Sharon Middle School in Sharon, Massachusetts, in a classroom of largely, you know, mentally handicapped individuals. Uh, and I was charged with finding them jobs. I did a little work in the school. I tried to spend lunch with them, but most of my job was finding jobs for them. And, uh, it wasn't easy, but you know, honestly, I've said, if I, if I win the lottery, I'm going back to working with autistic kids. Right. I mean, it's frustrating. And I didn't go to, you know, I don't have a master's degree in education, right? So there was obviously going to be a ceiling as to what my income could be. I'm not certified in special education, but I had the passion to do that for a living. And if I saw a financial trend that would support a family of five, you know, I probably would have stayed there. So I still love it. And, uh, you know, eventually if I could ever start a foundation, that, that would certainly be what it would be about. Very cool. No, that's why I love getting people on the show. I would have never known uh, something like yeah, that about you. So that, that's great. So when does mixed martial arts get in your radar as far as even just watching it or like, you know, as a fan or, or anything like that? When, when did that come about? So I was working for the Sporting News Radio affiliate in Boston. I was hosting the Afternoon Drive show, and then I was also hosting the Mouthpiece Boxing show once a week. And we covered a lot of HBO pay-per-views over a three-year span. We got to know Gary Shaw, who was a mixed martial arts promoter who developed Elite XC, right? So he was trying to get a lot of the boxing media to cross into mixed martial arts. So he invited our boxing radio show to go to Tunica, Mississippi to see Elite XC1. You know, Cabbage versus Bigfoot, Charles Crazy Horse Bennett against KJ Noons, a result I will never forget. Gina Carano, Julie Kedzie, on and on it went. Uh, It was Henzo Gracie and Frank Shamrock in the main event. And we took our radio show there and I didn't know what mixed martial arts was all about. And even though when it came to the live event, I didn't love the dragons breathing fire and some of the histrionics. 
I've never seen a live event like that in terms of the sport and just to my untrained amateur eye, how much more entertaining it was than boxing. Now, I didn't say that on my boxing show until probably 18 months later, but I was having all these different emotions. We had sort of become boxing apologists because this avalanche of mixed martial arts was coming. And I got the bug pretty quickly, you know, and then I was at ESPN as well. So I was in Bristol when they launched MMA Live on ESPN.com about a year after that Tunica, Mississippi Elite XC show. I auditioned for MMA Live and largely because I was one of the few boxing guys in the building, I got that opportunity. And I guess you could say the rest is history. But this sport grabbed me. And had I not gone to a live event, I don't know that that it would have, but my my wheels started to churn and I started to think career wise like, man, I could really I could really see myself following mixed martial. I mean, it's ruined baseball for me. Right. Like I can't sit through an at bat, never mind an inning. Uh, So, yeah, thankfully, I was in the right place at the right time in a lot of respects, whether it was at ESPN or when the UFC doubled its schedule. And uh, thankfully, I was there when those opportunities came my way. You know, do you remember who, who else auditioned for that show? I don't. I mean, it was a small group. I was less than five guys. Uh, okay. But no, I don't know. I mean, maybe like Robert Flores might have been in the mix. Uh, I really I don't know. Oh, interesting. Um, no, I just, I'm always curious to see kind of how, uh, you know, people sort of make their way uh, in the industry and everything. Yeah. And, so, and I was on the radio side at that time. And I expressed earlier sort of some of my reluctance to get into TV. I never really wanted to get into TV. You know, they thought I had a tick when I auditioned. They were like, we can't get this guy to sit still. And you can probably see in my pay-per-view opens, it's still something that I deal with trying to keep my body quiet. But uh, yeah. Really? I, honestly, I, I don't notice that at all. That's well, interesting. thanks, man. Thanks. It's, you know, I guess a lot of repetitions, but it, it took me a long time to to get rid of that tick. Maybe I'll bring it back for 226. You never know. Do it. Yeah. To, uh, the return of the tick for sure. Um, so, so you're doing MMA live. Everything's going really well. Like when did it, when take me through the process of the UFC contacting you and saying, Hey, we got the spot open, you know, as a commentator play by play. Um, how did that all come together? Like, and how long was that into your tenure at ESPN live? So I wanted to do live events. I wanted to do play by play. I got a few college football opportunities at ESPN, but it was few and far between, you know, maybe a game a season. You're not going to get any better calling, you know, three college football games in three years. So I always had that aspiration. Not that I wouldn't have re-signed with ESPN if there weren't other options out there, but I always wanted to do live events. So I was covering the Shogun Jones fight, maybe UFC 128 uh, in New Jersey and Craig Borsari, uh, who is still my boss, our executive VP of operations on the production side, approached me and said, Hey, you know, we might have an opportunity for you. Have your agent call me on Monday. And I probably had, you know, six months or so left on my UFC contract. And obviously it was crazy to have that conversation with Craig because then I had to go work the rest of the night. I'm like jumping out of my skin. <laughs> but basically the UFC was doubling its schedule, right? essentially in 2011, going from whatever it was, 15 to 30 events, whatever it was at the time. And my whole job was going to be rooted in play-by-play and the ultimate fighter live, right? So that type of opportunity, um, you know, they could have paid me pennies at the time. I wasn't going to turn that down. So it would have taken, I think, a a huge play-by-play type of guarantee from ESPN to to not have me leave at that time. And, and I say a lot of the right place, right time stuff, because I was ESPN's default MMA guy. You know, I had done Bellator season nine, uh, excuse me, season one in 2009, which I guess we could revisit. So I did have some MMA experience, but when the UFC came calling, 
I credit it more to being in the right place at the right time than I was any sort of special broadcaster or anything like that. And thankfully, uh, in 2011, that opportunity came my way and, you know, obviously been with the UFC ever since. And, and before we continue this uh, story, I, I, I completely uh, forgot about that, that you were uh, doing commentating for Bellator. Because I actually, um, when I was working at Fight Network, we, uh, we used to do recaps for all the Bellator cards. And I definitely remember hearing your voice on some of those early broadcasts. How was that experience early on getting to work with Bellator? It was amazing. You know, I mean, I did think they had the wrong guy, right? When I sat down to call that first fight, I had hosted a boxing show. I had hosted a, a news desk mixed martial arts show, but I had never called an MMA fight. I don't believe I had called any boxing at that point in time, which I later went on to do at ESPN. So yeah, I was like, dude, Bjorn, I love you, but like, you got the wrong guy, man. Like, I don't know, you know, but you realize as a broadcaster, as, as soon as that first round started, you stay in your lane, you play to your strengths. And I was very happy with how quickly it felt comfortable. Um, and even though that wasn't a great broadcaster back then, it comes to you pretty quickly and you just sort of stick to what got you there. But yeah, Bjorn, again, I, I was one of the few MMA guys in that ESPN building when Bjorn needed a play-by-play guy. We weren't even on TV, right? I mean, they didn't right. decide until pretty late in the game that they were going to do an English broadcast. They had the Spanish stuff on ESPN Deportes. I think we were on TV in Australia but we weren't even on TV in the States. But thankfully, I'm sure those repetitions helped when uh, when Craig and the UFC came calling a couple of years later. So you get the job at the UFC and, uh, you know, obviously the schedule is very demanding and everything like that. Like, how, how are you adjusting to that? You know, you know, being a family man and having this crazy schedule and going to all these events, how did you handle that initially? Well, when I took the job, I had a two-month-old daughter, right? So we moved from Connecticut to Las Vegas, and it's very different, as you know, when you have an infant compared to to when they get older. So I didn't necessarily know what I was getting into in terms of all of the international travel, right? I mean, I thought the Ultimate Fighter Live, that show was going to be live, and that was going to be a big part of what I was doing two seasons a year. That's 26 Friday nights in Las Vegas. So that obviously went away after one season, but early on I missed some live events because I was going to be in Vegas for those Friday night shows. So I didn't think that seven years later, I would have gone to Brazil 25 times or Australia eight having been all over Canada and everywhere else. And thankfully I'm glad those miles are in the rear view mirror. You know, I never had any great aspirations to be sort of an international renaissance traveler or anything like that but uh it certainly has has opened my eyes and i think helped me grow as a person and a broadcaster and a lot of different elements as you know on the road non-air conditioned venues and and different things that help you as a broadcaster when you're on a headset for seven hours but it's hard man it's hard every every trip i'm an emotional guy i get emotional every trip obviously my girls are getting older it's getting harder but uh when I'm home, I'm home. And even though there's a lot of things that go into the daily routine and I'm voicing stuff almost every day, I drove them to camp today. I will pick them up from camp today. And that means a lot to me, you know. So early on, uh, you know, when you started, uh, social media wasn't as prominent as it is today. But uh, how did you handle that criticism early on? Because, of course, you've got fans who yeah, everyone's an expert, right? And I know you see this in all sports. But if I'm in MMA, it's, it's a little bit different in terms of people just – I don't know what it is, but people just really want to want to tell you how bad you are at your job. How did uh, how did you handle that early on? Well, I used to be on the radio in Boston uh, hearing from Red Sox fans. Now, oh, granted, okay. back then there was no social media, right? So that if yeah. they didn't call the show, if they didn't like one of my opinions, right, there was no real way for them to find me or get after me. You know, I wasn't on MySpace or Facebook. There was no line of communication back then. But it did thicken my skin, you know, when people would call in and really – cut down your opinion and your take 
So I guess I developed that early on, 24, 25 years old. But yeah, social media was an entirely different beast. I wasn't familiar with it. I remember when ESPN required us to get a Twitter handle so they could font it on TV. And I was like, yeah, I'm not, you know, really? Like, this is required? Okay, I guess we'll do this, you know? I think Molly Karam, who's on first take, was actually the one who made me get a Twitter account um, way back in the day. But no, it's it's not easy, man. I mean, it, obviously, it's I think it's harder on my mom and my wife if they sort of step into those mentions sometimes. And But, you know, thankfully, it, it has gone slowly but surely from, I think, an avalanche of hate after my first UFC telecast in Nashville to at least some modicum of respect. But there's a lot of value out there. There's a lot of constructive stuff out there. You just got to sift through the misinformation. I don't, you know, I haven't blocked anybody. Um, you know, I've had to mute a, f- a few people when it comes to like the death threats and stuff. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. You're in the public eye. And, you know, I try pretty hard. I don't always succeed, as maybe we've seen recently, to sort of keep my name out of the news. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. I'm a human at the end of the day. And, you know, you have opinions, right? And like, I, I'm almost 40. I feel like when I'm 55, it's going to be awfully harder to sit on my opinions than it is now. So, you know, I've tried very hard to sort of, you know, be myself, but walk up to the... The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Line and not cross it, you know. I agree. And, and we'll, we'll get to that uh, a bit later uh, in, in the show. But, um, you know, we talked about uh, sort of, uh, you know, early on, you know, you love doing the radio stuff. Uh, you do the, the podcast with Kenny Florian, the Anakin Florian podcast. Um, how has that been? Because I know, uh, you know, just talking to you right now, it sounds like that's something that you also really enjoy as far as uh, something aside from the commentary. I think radio is really my first love in broadcasting. And if there was a way to do a five day a week radio TV show simulcast that was rooted in UFC stuff, I'd be very interested in doing that. But yeah, it's a labor of love. You know, we're not making a ton of money on that show. We're able to pay the bills, but there's really not a whole lot more than that. I know Ray Longo, who's on every week, would like a raise. Um, but it's it's allowed me to to maintain that radio component. And if you have ever heard it or watched it, it's a radio show. I treat it like a radio show. And hopefully we've been able to carve out a, a little niche. You know, it took me about six months to get Kenny Florin on board because, as you know, James, once you start it, you've got to be there every week. Consistent, and yeah. I really do believe and, you know, I hope I don't come to regret these words and I hope the show lasts forever. But it is the, the best way I can think of to give back to the fans that really have given me so much. And even though we talk maybe more about the negativity out there, I have a lot of support out there that I appreciate greatly. And this is my ability to provide free content to mixed martial arts fans. And it's an obligation I take pretty seriously. And you got to be there every week. If you're somebody out there watching this, you want to start a podcast, as you know, you got to be there every week. And thankfully for three plus years, we've been there and it's fun and I can swear and, you know, I enjoy it. 
I mentioned earlier in your career mentors. Uh, what about now? Who are some people that you sort of go to for advice? Um, you know, because I know even you know even even the best, they still have people that they need to you know talk with when it comes to their career and and just making decisions and just you know advice in general. You know, it's really sad that three of the guys uh, who who were those guys for me have passed away in the last two years. Uh, certainly, Bruce Connell, our longtime UFC pay per view producer, who will go into the Hall of Fame this summer. Is always one of my first calls when I needed something. Kevin Kaufman, my dear friend and former radio broadcast partner who passed away a few days ago. And then Anthony Mormile, my first boss on the TV side at ESPN. He passed away a couple years ago. So those are the three names that, of course, come to mind. You know, Craig Borsari, my current boss, I know he's a wise man who I can always lean on. Zach Candido, our coordinating producer, he and I go way, way back to ESPN in 2006 and he, of course, now, you know, essentially runs our UFC pay-per-view operation. So he's a guy who has I've been able to lean on at times. And I have a lot of savvy friends, good friends. My identical twin brother, Jason, whom I talk to probably five or six times a day, is a huge resource for me. My agent, you know, Gideon Cohen. So I feel like I have a support system. But, you know, when you bring it up right now, it's just crazy to think all these great men who were at my wedding not all that long ago who I would really lean on uh, are no longer here. So thankfully, uh you know, it takes a village and there are a lot of people out there that I can lean upon. But it's been a crazy few years, man, in terms of, of a lot of people in our industry passing on, you know. Uh, I wanted to get to a few topics here. Uh, it's been great, you know, learning about your story and everything. And obviously the big one, which is kind of coming full circle for you, is ESPN getting involved in uh, in the UFC business. Uh, just initial thoughts when the deal came together and what are you sort of forecasting for, you know, the new deal going forward? Well, I think a lot of us are surprised to see ESPN go all in on mixed martial arts. I think a lot of it has to do with the change of, of leadership at the top of ESPN, but it's certainly very exciting for us. It's a five-year commitment, with, which I think is different than a seven- or eight-year commitment. So even though it's a tremendous annual price, you're renegotiating in three and a half, four years anyway, right? So it's a five-year deal. I think ESPN will really test the waters, and hopefully it's something that leads to a, a longer-term relationship. Fox has really devoted a lot of resources and time to the UFC. So I think a lot of us internally were surprised to see Fox not retain any part of it. But I think the Thursday night NFL deal for Fox maybe was sort of the beginning of, of the end. And, and the WWE deal obviously is now a big cornerstone for them and something that they really believe in. But it's exciting, man. You know, certainly when we started pushing the MMA envelope at ESPN in 2007 and 2008, and there are a lot of people who deserve credit for that, you know, the late Anthony Mormile, as I mentioned, you know, Kieran Portley and others. But we, I mean, if you would have said, hey, 10 years later, ESPN is going to be the exclusive rights holder in the United States, I would have said no fucking way, you know? So the fact that we're there, I think, as someone who cut his teeth in that building is very, very exciting. So we'll see what happens going forward. I think professionally for me, it's, I don't know that much is going to change on the live events side, right? I haven't been on a, a, a UFC desk in over a year. So at least in terms of, of the live events, I'm, I'm hopeful and expectant that it's going to remain status quo and I'll still get to work with the, you know, eight or 10 guys that I work with right now and that I'll still be able to be the lead play-by-play guy. But I'm sure a lot's going to be decided over the next few months and, and we'll have more answers soon. But it's exciting, obviously. You referenced earlier in the show uh, placing a bet, uh, you know, for the Boston Bruins, uh, you know, in the playoffs and everything like that. And I know you do, uh, you know, you tweet a lot of odds and I know you are uh, sort of involved in, you know, the wagering side of, of the sport. And, and the big news recently is that uh, gambling has been legalized. What do you see for the future of that uh, just in North America now? Because there are a lot, a good chunk of, I'd say, the MMA fans who watch are, are betting on the fights. 
It's very exciting. And I'm one of those few MMA fans that is contractually prevented from betting on mixed martial arts. I can't even bet on non, non-UFC MMA. Oh, really? But uh, it's amazing, right? As somebody who's sort of attached myself to the gambling thing for a long time. And, and I will tell you too, it's partially genetic, right? It is in your blood. Um, my grandfather was sneaking me into cruise ship casinos when I was 11 years old. I probably placed over 30,000 bets on sports in my lifetime since I was 18 years old and had a check card, you know, but I've been placing bets, you know, online in Antigua and having to sort of go around and go around different obstacles. So the fact that we could get to a place in North America where I could pull up an app on my phone, like I did when I was a Vegas resident for four years and place a bet is amazing, is absolutely amazing. And obviously I think the UFC and Fox deserves credit because as you know, they've gotten ahead of it and been willing to let me spout the lines for all of these main card fights and do things like that. We've embraced it. And as you mentioned, I think a lot of these fans have an appetite for MMA, the sport, the technical nature of it. But there are there are MMA fans like my twin brother who got into the sport in some part because he had action on it. And, you know, the, the more we can cater to those people, the better. I've always found betting odds to be a great lens through which to look at these events. I didn't expect Curtis Blades to be favored to beat Mark Hunt in Australia. Vegas always knows. Right. I'll mm-hmm. do, that's just one example. I try to see what I think the odds are going to be before I take a look. And to me, it's fascinating, right? And it makes you look at that fight differently. Okay, Curtis Blades is favored to go to Australia and beat Mark Hunt and all those savvy chops that he brings to the table. And sure enough, you see what Blades has done ever since. Vegas knows Curtis Blades has been favored in every one of his UFC fights and the only losses to Ngano. So um, I'll keep, you know, championing the the Vegas cause, man. And thankfully, we're moving in the right direction here uh, in the States and beyond, you know. That's good that Fox sort of like supports the lines. I mean, I have noticed that as far as far as the lines and stuff, because I yeah. was wondering if, if anyone sort of has to step in and say, hey, man, you know, we don't want people getting the wrong idea here that you're betting on, on stuff like you, you don't get any of that, do you? No, but back at, in 2008, when I was at MMA Live, you know, at one point, I remember going back into my boss's office after a show. He's like, dude, enough with the betting odds, man. Find a new angle, you know, yeah. and I probably at that time was guilty of pushing it a little bit too hard. But yeah. again, it's a passion of mine. And uh, it's something that I think is is very interesting. And again, a very interesting way to look at a fight on paper because I respect Vegas a whole lot. So, yeah, no resistance over the last few years, for sure. You know, Dana and Craig, they're they're They've been in Vegas a long time, and I think they appreciate that angle as well. Are you allowed to bet on other sports, though, like outside of MMA? Oh, you are goddamn right. I got action on probably every Major League Baseball game that's starting within the next three hours. Oh, interesting. Okay. Is, is, is that tough, you know, doing, trying to keep track of all that while also, you know, doing research for cards, you know, being a dad, like, like, how do you balance that? So I don't, I don't bet on sports to make a living, right? So right, my yeah. twin brother has much more restraint and probably does better at year's end because he's not always just looking for action, right? Mm-hmm. I consider myself to be a pretty sharp better. But if there's a noon game on a Thursday in Major League Baseball, I want some action. Now, I might not do as much research as I should. I'm not sitting down watching the game. I'm not perseverating over the score every second of the day. But, you know, I can't make money by not betting on the game. So I figure I might as well play it. And, uh, again, I'm a small-time player, too. I'm betting – I'm trying to win 50 bucks on a game. It's not like I'm betting 500 bucks a game like my buddies are, right? Uh, it's, it's a lot of volume for me, but it's not really much in terms of – her play. So it, it allows me to keep it in check. That's great. Um, one thing we got to talk about, you referenced a little bit earlier. Uh, I know this week you got a little bit of hot water just for your, your comments towards Michael Bisping, which by the way, from my personal opinion, I didn't think anything you said was a, a line. You just gave your opinion. Um, I know you put the apology out there. Uh, just 
kind of take me through that process of, you know, why you decided to apologize? Because I think some people felt like you were you weren't out of line. Well, I wish I could get into more detail than I can. Right, here, but, yeah. you know, out of respect for a lot of different people, I, I can't. You know, I I felt the need to publicly apologize. Right. Because my word choice when talking about one of my colleagues and an analyst uh, was not appropriate. So I, I reached out publicly, obviously, so that people would understand where I was coming from. And maybe that brought more attention to it. So that probably was a mistake in retrospect. You know, I have connected with Michael privately, and we are on the same page. And again, we've talked for a long time about calling fights together, right? And all this is happening as he's debuting on Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender Series. I've talked for a long time about calling fights with that guy. Um, I, I had Callum, his son, on my podcast two years ago before he was one of the best wrestlers in the state of California. So my biggest regret is that this would wedge the personal relationship that I've worked hard to create. Um, I'm not an analyst either, right? So it's not, you know, some people are crediting me for being outward with my opinion. And I really can't take that credit because I'm not an analyst. I'm a play-by-play guy. And I know some people think it's refreshing when I put my opinion out there, but it's not really my place. So, you know, I've connected with the UFC on it. I've connected with Fox on it. It seems like Mike and I are going to be able to move past this, thankfully, and hopefully call fights together down the line. But uh, I'm never trying to be the story man, you know, whether it comes to the 209 tattoo or this thing. And, and obviously that's, something that I regret. Um, but as, as you know, I have strong opinions and the number one job for me in this seat, as far as I see it is to promote these athletes and, you know, whether it's Colby Covington or anyone else, when you win a UFC championship, um, I feel like I have a pretty good grasp as to how hard that was. And so I just want to tell people it came from a good place of, of defending the athlete, but, uh, you know, I just need to get more sleep and not be, uh, on social media so much, you know, days after shows, I guess. Well, I was going to ask you about that too. Like, do you, do you find yourself sometimes where you're like, ah, I, I want to say something, but I, I shouldn't, I don't want to, you know, ruffle any feathers. Like I, even I have to do that too. Cause it's like, I don't want people, it, it's 140 characters. Well, it's more than 140 characters now. It's, you know, you, you have to be careful because people, it, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a sentence or two. People might interpret it a certain way. Uh, do, you, do you find that something you've had to work on over the years, just trying to make sure that, you know, you're, you're keeping things uh, professional? Yeah, I mean, I there are certainly a lot of tweets that that never see the light of day that I start writing that I that I never push out there, you know. But I will say, I mean, a lot of people think I'm a shill for these athletes, and guilty as charged, right? Like I'm promoting these guys. That's my number one job is to humanize these athletes and to help this promotion build stars while lending context to these historical moments, you know. So I am I'm a positive guy inherently in my life, but I mean. You know, you go back to Colby Covington's UFC debut, and I was thinking he was special, right? I mean, the, like, that's my – there's not – I don't really get off on the negative stuff. I have strong opinions maybe more about television and other sports than it would be coming down on any particular athlete. But, uh, you know, it is what it is, man. It's uh, – I don't have carte blanche to just shoot from the hip, and I, I recognize that. You know, there are a lot of play-by-play guys, James, that don't have – Twitter accounts and and I understand increasingly why, you know. Yeah, no, I, I understand that for sure. Um, we're gonna wrap things up in a little bit here, but I wanted to sort of look back on, on your career a little bit. Uh, what is the the best moment in your career so far, whether it was in the UFC or just maybe something in general, even before you got into to doing the commentating job? Is there one thing that sort of stands out? Gosh, it's hard. I, you know, I think the best moment will be when my eldest daughter comes to a UFC show that I'm commentating, is able to sort of take that in with me. But the first time we had MMA live at a, a UFC pay-per-view at ESPN is certainly something that is special. Um, 
you know, the first night that I called a UFC event in Nashville, Tennessee with, with my good friend, Kenny Florian, you know, Bigfoot uh, and Mark Hunt in Brisbane, Australia in December of 2013, that fight's happening at like one o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm thinking, I'm praying that everybody back in North America is watching this fight because it's the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. You know, Matt Brown in Cincinnati, um, you know, I'll, I'll never forget when they told me that I was, you know, becoming the lead guy on pay-per-view. I mean, that kind of buckled my knee when, when Zach Candido brought me behind the TV truck and shared that news with me. Uh, you know, a lot of crazy stuff has happened, man. And, and, you know, I'm very thankful and I don't take this seat for granted. As I've said a million times, Dana can get rid of me without cause at any time. And I take that mentality to, to every show. And, um, you know, it, we never have a perfect show. We, we, we never will. And, uh, but I really don't take the seat for granted. I know it could go away at any time. So thankfully it's worked out this way. Better to be lucky than good. And, you know, hopefully we can do another seven years at least, you know. Yeah, I'd say so. It's uh, been a, been a great run, and it's going to continue to be a great run. Um, now, as far as um, you know, the, the the this is a dream job for a lot of people. What you have uh, right here is is there a job beyond this that would be like the ultimate dream job for you? Um, you know, like you mentioned, obviously, uh, you know, maybe later on in your career, uh, maybe going back to you know work with uh, students and everything, like you said. But yeah. is there something else out there that that would really be sort of the pinnacle for for your career? You know, when I look to Joe Rogan on my right calling these fights you know, you got to pinch yourself a little bit, right? Because even though when I left ESPN, it was the, the seat that I aspired to have. Uh, it's still just a great honor to, to work with such an iconic guy. But to call an NFL football game would be something that really would make me feel like I could rest in peace. You know, um, the NFL just holds such a special place in my heart and in this country and in my family that, you know, even if it was as respectfully if, as I can say this, you know, the Buffalo Bills and the Detroit Lions in Buffalo on the coldest, snowiest day of the year, you know, that that that's a gig that I want. You know, I would love to be the last guy on the totem pole, you know, Fox's seventh guy out of seven on the NFL beat. I would love to do an NFL game. Thankfully, FS1 gave me an opportunity to do a high profile national college football game back in 2015. But the NFL is king here, James. I think you know that. And and mm -hmm. any chance I would have to to work in some NFL capacity. I mean, would I like to to work for a team? Absolutely. But at this point, I'm just I'm not sure that's in the cards. But hopefully there's some NFL in my future at some point. You mentioned the travel. You mentioned the you know the, the the toll it can take on your family. Just trying to balance everything with all the events, all the traveling you're doing. How much long realistically are you looking at doing this? Uh, it's a dream job, but everyone has their limit, and uh, you always have to look at the next step. Yeah, I mean it's a good question, man, and and I know it's coming from a good source. I think my my role has changed obviously with with the company over the last eighteen months. The international travel hasn't been what it was in years past. You know, I think if you sat down with me. Two years ago, I would have been like, dude, I'm burning, man. I don't know how long I can do this with all of the internationals, you know, 13, 14 internationals in a year at one point in time. But that has changed a little bit. You know, as I said, it's a balancing act, right? When I'm home, I am home. I think my eldest daughter right now, who I lean on a lot, likes it that I can take her to school a lot of days and understands that if I'm working a nine to five and going to the gym before work, I'm gone all day and maybe come home just for bedtime. So there are pluses to it. As far as how long I could call fights, you know, I worry about my voice, certainly, right, and that I'm not always using my diaphragm properly, and at some point it could go, and, and there might be something I need surgically. So I worry about my tool, um, but, uh, you know, I'd like to do this for a long time, man. I really would. I, I'm just thankful to to have this seat. I really am, and I, I this sport has ruined a lot of others for me. I mean, the NFL – 
and the UFC are right there at the top of the food chain for me. But to go do a college basketball game that at one time was a dream, it kind of sounds pedestrian to me now, a regular season college basketball game. You know, give me a fight pass prelim on the equator in Fortaleza every day of the week over, you know, Duke and Clemson in, in December, you know. So um, hopefully, uh, you know, mixed martial arts is a part of my my future, you know. One thing we haven't talked about on here is uh, professional wrestling. And of course, on the opposite side of uh, the UFC is Bellator. And you have Mauro Ronaldo who does uh, work for, you know, the WWE uh, NXT brand. Is, is that something that, that interests you at all? Is pro wrestling something that was ever on your radar at all? No, I mean, I think for all of us, when we were younger, we had friends who were all about it. So at one point I did get dragged and that's probably the wrong verb, but to a WWF (laughs) event and I enjoyed it. And and candidly, if I was flipping through the channels as I used to do more than I do now, anytime I would get to the WWE or pro wrestling, I, I couldn't take my eyes off it. So I can understand why man my age had the appetite for it, because when I used to flip through, it was like, man, I can't, I kind of can't take my eyes off this, but I just don't have time for it. You know, I don't even have time to watch all the great MMA that there is out there um, in order to ingest every single UFC fight that happens. So, uh, you know, it is what it is. But uh, I know there are a lot of people in that Fox building that are going into overdrive when it comes to pro wrestling because they think that that might be a part of their future here pretty soon. So hopefully not mine, but you never know. Do you, do you watch like Bellator and one and any of this stuff? I know obviously you're very busy uh, with it, but uh, do, do you ever try and catch any of the other stuff or is it just, I watch, stay fo- you know, I watch the big fights, like certainly a guy like Kyoji Horiguchi, when he fights, I make sure to watch that whole fight. Cause I think he's probably the second best flyweight in the world, you know? Um, so it's appointment viewing, I think for me in a lot of respects, certainly Michael Chandler's a guy that I go out of my way to watch. So I think it comes to, it's more about individuals, you know, and, and, yeah. you know, Jimmy Smith is a friend of mine. So I used to support him and maybe watched it uh, for that reason. And John McCarthy's a good friend. So early on, I want to see how he was doing, making that transition. But uh, you know how it is, my man, it's just tough. There are only so many hours in the day and you kind of want to lock up the phone and, you know, put in the time with the kids. So it's a balancing act and, and I'm getting better at it every day, hopefully, and not worse. And speaking of time, this is my last question here, and this is a great way to wrap up the show. What is the best advice you'd give to someone who's looking to, you know, reach the pinnacle of, of you know, being a commentator or someone in general who wants to get into broadcasting? What's the John Anik uh, take? Uh, what's the, the John Anik final thoughts as they say on Jerry Springer? So I, I used to teach at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting, and so okay. there were really two operative lines of thinking. Number one is the value of an internship, right? If, if Even if you have to take out a $12,000 loan, Right. As I did to go to the Connecticut School of Broadcasting, I took out the twelve thousand dollar loan, not for any editing or digital skills, just so I could get credit for an internship that wasn't paid. Right. I paid twelve grand to get an internship at a radio station that wouldn't give me the internship unless I was a student. Okay, and that's what got me on my way. So the value of an internship is absolutely the number one thing. And then to just be ready when the opportunity presents itself. Right. As you've been in your career, when all of a sudden things start to mushroom, you've been the guy on the front lines and SI or whomever is going to attach themselves to you. And that's a great thing. But I was ready. I talk a lot about opportunities and luck. And I'm sorry, CM Punk, but I did get lucky at times. And I have gotten lucky as a sports better. I don't know what else you'd call it, but I've been ready for those opportunities, even though I might not have been the best guy. So start a podcast today and do it every Monday for the rest of your life so that when you get that audition, even if you're not expectant that you're going to get it, that you're ready for that opportunity as I, for some strange reason was, you know, because you don't the audition could be tomorrow and, you know, you want to be ready to sort of maximize that opportunity. So. 
John, this is a blast. We've already uh, gotten to about an hour here. I really appreciate the time, man. It's uh, great getting to, to hear your backstory and obviously, uh, you know, hear about how you got to where you got to now. Um, just remind people uh, where they can find you on social media, anything you got coming up with the Anik and Florian podcast, and when we'll see you next in the broadcast booth. Well, I appreciate it, man, and I'd love to reciprocate it and, and have you on the Anakin Florian podcast. You can okay. find that on iTunes and SoundCloud and the video version, at least I think in North America on FoxSports.com every week as well. And uh, UFC 226, it's International Fight Week. All of our proceeds for the Hall of Fame induction ceremony are going to charity. So if you are somebody who is going to be in Las Vegas, media member, fan, whatever it is, obviously you know Ronda Rousey's going into the Hall of Fame. I've hosted this thing for, I think, four years now. It's a very special night. It's going to be more efficient than it was last year, so it's going to be shorter. It's going to be very ingestible. And let's pack the house for Rhonda and my late friend Bruce Connell on Thursday, July 5th. So thank you for that. Excited to see what DC can do against Stipe. Man, I could talk to you all day, but thank you for uh, the chance to chop it up and, and hopefully have you on my show pretty soon, my man. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. And I want to thank uh, my audience for watching today. And it was off for two weeks uh, in Ireland. So I'm back. We're going to be doing this every Thursday and uh, keeping it consistent. So I want to thank everyone for watching there. And you guys can always follow me on Twitter at Lynch on Sports. I'm uh, putting all my content on there. I want to thank John once again. I want to thank you guys for watching and we'll see you next Thursday. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.